This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. We're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. This season, we're getting personal with our guests because we believe the revolution at work and in society begins with a revolution in our homes. Many of us don't fit the mold of the married parent with 2.1 children. In the U.S., about a third of all kids live in households with an unmarried parent. And some of us wonder why, after following that tidy script of partnering up and having kids in a nuclear family, it still feels like a major uphill battle to get our lives to even function as working moms. So what can we learn from people who are creating unconventional families? There were people I told that I was going to do this, and they were like, you better have a good lawyer. I was like, seriously? That's your advice? Like, you're not like, congratulations, you're pregnant? Like, yeah, like you're setting yourself up for a disaster. Today, I'll talk with three women who have taken big risks to build their families following no one's rules but their own. This is season two of The Double Shift. The revolution begins at home. Meet Sarah McDonald. She's a 38-year-old queer social worker raising two kids with a gay male co-parent named Bino Tarahi in Toronto, Canada. But before she got to this point, Sarah had a tough childhood. She was one of 12 kids, including half- and step-siblings, living on a farm in Prince Edward Island. At the age of 11, she ended up in foster care due to the fact her father and stepmother didn't have the capacity to care for her. And she never returned home. But even before that, things weren't easy. When Sarah was eight, her biological mom walked out on the family. There was this film on TV around the time my mom left, and it was called A Mom for Christmas. And the little girl goes into the store, and the mannequin turns into a mom, and she, like, moves it. Oh, my God, I'm going to cry. She, like, moves into their home, and, like, the little girl has to teach the mom how to eat popcorn because she, like, doesn't know that you're not supposed to eat it just one piece at a time. And, like, then they have to, like, save the mannequin mom so she doesn't turn back into a mannequin before midnight. It's like a reverse Cinderella weird mom thing. Anyway, she was so pretty, and she was nice, and she was gentle. And I've always, like, my whole life just ached for those, like, warm mom hands when I was sick. I just thought, wow, like, wouldn't that be so amazing to just have those, like, soft, warm mom hands on my forehead and tuck me in and make me soup and teach me how to cook food and, like, I don't know, just be tender to me when I was struggling, you know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've always ached for that. I still mm. do. Gosh, I still do. Mm. And that's an intimacy you can't just, like, ask for. It's something so sacred that when you have that, that exists organically in a relationship, me might not think about, but... For me, that was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like such a a powerful image and a powerful longing that, you know, yeah, as you say, like that never goes away in some yeah. ways. Um, was there anyone while you were in foster care who was sort of a stable presence in your childhood that had a big impact on you? Yeah, you know what? I've never forgotten a single person that's been tender to me because it was just so foreign. Like we were in such a work mindset and such a survival mindset. Like we have to like weed this garden so that we have enough food. We have $100 to get through the week. And so we were just on basic needs. Is there enough food? Is everyone alive? 
And so as a result, I didn't really get any of those tender people. Like when I went into foster care, I didn't have any shoes. I don't know how that happened because it was like February. And this woman gave me like this pair of like old granny or white Reeboks. That was like the nicest thing I'd ever owned. I couldn't believe everyone was being so nice to me already. And it had only been like a short time. And like those were just kind of like the initial stages of contact. There was one woman in particular, I don't know, she'd always just call me honey and sweetie. And I love that so much because no one ever talked to me like that before. She'd be like, oh, baby girl, you're struggling. This is a hard time in life. It's hard to be a teenager. And babe, you know, you weren't just like a regular teenager. You're an extraordinary teenager. All the stuff you're going through being a teenager is the hardest thing you'll ever do. You know, and she just always be like, I don't know, she just always saw the good in me no matter what. And apparently she was the only person who could handle me because I was getting upset and I was getting angry and I was getting sad and, you know, I was losing my hope because no one really cared about me. That woman who was so kind to her during her teen years was a woman named Cindy, who we'll get back to later in the story. In Sarah's 20s, she had a rough time getting through college and had a number of tumultuous relationships. But by her early 30s, she was thinking about having her own kids and what that might look like. She didn't really have models from her own childhood on how to do that. For a while, she planned to have a kid with a woman she was in a romantic relationship with, but eventually it became clear that the girlfriend wasn't serious about wanting kids. They broke up, and Sarah started visiting websites like Modamily, which helps people find each other for the purpose of starting a family. On the site, people can find egg or sperm donors, but also can find people to co-parent with, meaning they come together with a shared vision of parenting, but without an underlying romantic relationship. Sarah continued to research her options, knowing she wanted some kind of parenting partner rather than being a single mother by choice. I heard so much suffering in the communities of gay men about how much they ache to be dads and how hard it is for them. They have to rely on a surrogate. They can't adopt if they're single. You know, it's kind of like the you know, that internalized homophobia that they might be perceived as like having some kind of other intention or that they'd be a predator or something like that because gay men aren't welcomed into that fold and circle of fatherhood in the same way. Anyhow, it just was like, it was super important to me to parent with someone and I wanted that someone to be a gay man. So we know that you now have a family with Bino, your co-parent. How did you first connect with him? And, and what, what was that um, what was that connection like? It was funny. He sent me a really crappy email, um, which I didn't respond to because it seemed creepy. And his picture was like from very far away and he had a hat and sunglasses. And there was like nothing on his profile. Um, so I just figured he was like a creepy straight guy. Um, just like, like just it was like, like how R, letter R, letter U, like it wasn't even like full words. Um, So I kind of dismissed it and the name was Bino. Like, what is that? Like, I've never heard that name before. So I just kind of like assumed it wasn't like a real thing. Then I, all of a sudden I got a new email. It was just written like it was like a personal response to my profile. Because if you look at the women's profiles on Modamily, you'll see like, it's like, you know, I'm just really looking at getting into the crevices of like the nuanced ways we can nurture a new life and fully unfold. Uh, you know, and then on the men's profiles, it's like, I want a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's so much emotional labor put in. I'm just like, you know, because so that's, I was like reading the women's profiles and like looking at that as a possible option as well. 
But I get this like super thoughtful tuned in email, you know, like it's really important to me to really consider, you know, how to raise like a sensitive child in this, you know, this time. And it was just like, it was just, it was such a thoughtful, kind reply to my email. And so I met Bino for the first time at the Starbucks at Wellesley and Young, like just outside the gay village. And he comes in and he's this huge, big bear of a man. Like he's like hairy and big muscles and like six foot four. And he's jacked, like he's huge. And he's carrying this like tiny cup of milk because he doesn't drink any caffeinated beverages or hot things usually. So they gave him like, I don't know why they gave him espresso cup with like a little milk. I think it was just a horrible misunderstanding because he was so nervous. And we're at the Starbucks and I'm sitting down already because I was there early, like prepared and like with my list of questions Mm -hmm. and things like I would accept and wouldn't. I was like ready for a job interview and he showed up with his tiny cup of milk and his hand is shaking so bad. The milk is kind of like spattering out. And I was like, oh, my God, I want him for my kid's dad, like right away. Has he looked in the mirror? How is he scared of me? Anyhow, I have like this like super romantic story. And when he retells the story, he's like, well, I didn't meet any other women. So what are you going to do? Mothers are going to love their kids. Um, you know, it always hurts me, but anyway, it's just like, he shows his love in other ways. And then we had a couple more hangouts and meals. And then we planned this big party where we invited 10 of our closest people each. And then one of the friends who came to the party had this brilliant thought. And she said, why don't we each go around and tell the other person what we want them to know. So like my friends would say to be okay, this is like my relationship with Sarah. This is what I want you to know about her. And then his friends did the same thing. And it was actually just like, it was like the ultimate interview. We just both learned so many powerful things about each other. And I invited my ex who was like, you know what the thing about Sarah is that she's a fucking control freak. And then she ran out the door in tears. Wow. So it was it was both a positive and also showing some warts so everyone knew what they were getting into. Yeah, and it was great. I was like, yeah, you know what? She's not wrong when I get scared. I do get controlling because like I worry and that's how my worry manifests. And he's like, well, that's pretty human. And like, no one can be controlled unless they also agree to it. And that means that that they're probably not stepping up and they're provoking that in ways. He didn't say it like that. That's my lesbian retelling of it. He was probably like, it's fine. Three months after first meeting and a whirlwind platonic courtship, Sarah and Bino were pregnant. They used artificial insemination at home. Before the conception, they drew up a contract based on agreements they found online and worked out that they'd split mutual kid expenses each month. And Sarah got pregnant on the first try with their first child. So after your son was born in May 2015, how did you and Bino start to navigate your roles <gasps> as new as new parents? It was so hard. It was so hard. I couldn't actually sleep for the first five days because I was so scared someone was going to take my baby. Um, mm. Bino would wake up every morning. By the fifth day, he's like, oh, my God, Sarah. He's like, you look horrible. You have to sleep. And I was like, please don't take my baby. Don't take my baby. And then he's like trying to prepare the baby. Oh my God, I could cry just thinking about it. He's like trying to put the baby in the stroller. I was like, you got to cover him. He hasn't had his shots. Like, what if he gets it? Like, he's going to get like rubella. Like, you have to put the cover on. I know it's hot, but make sure it's not too hot because he can't overheat. And he's got those layers. I was like, I don't go. He was like, I'm going. I was like, just for 30 minutes. He's like, an hour. I'm like, 25. He's like, fine, half an hour. I like laid in the bed and just like rocked and sobbed and like held 
called his little poopy onesie and it was just like smelling it and I cried the whole time and he came back and I'm like I feel great I'm rested I feel really good I think I'm gonna slept that night finally we just like stayed in my room he was gonna sleep on the couch but he was like too worried like he didn't want to be so far from the baby so we like all slept in my bedroom for 10 days until we couldn't stand it anymore and I just wanted him to go <laughs> of course I'm bleeding everywhere trying to like be discreet about that while we're sharing a one bedroom apartment that's like 400 square feet it was really hard <laughs> so we were both living on the same street we had negotiated some kind of like back and forth plan that was not working and when it came time to do more of the like fourth to him I lost it and he's like so what do you want to do buy a house together and I was like yes and 10 days later we bought a house together we saw 10 houses one day Bina was in Montreal for pride weekend and we saw the house and I sent him a text message. I'm like, I think that there's another house. I'm going to go see. He's like, okay. I went in and I'm like, I'm not an architect because he is. And I was like, but I think we could build a wall in the middle and it will work. He's like, okay, let's buy it. He hadn't even seen the house. And we were like nine month old baby. Hadn't even seen the house. And he's like, okay, let's just buy it. Like he trusted me that much. And he was like in pr at pride. So we like bought the house when he wasn't even here. Yeah, we dumped everything we had into it. We're still recovering financially, but it's good. There's nothing I want to spend money on more than us being together. What did people, outside people, assume about your relationship with Bino? Oh, they'll go, oh, it's so, that must be so great because you don't have to have a relationship. I'm like, have you raised children with another person before? Like, you don't think there's intimacies in our relationships? Like, the only difference in our relationship is that, can I swear on your podcast? Yes, definitely. The only difference <laughs> in our relationship is that we don't fuck each other. So, like, we share a house. We share bills. We, we, we make decisions about raising children. Like, what about that? Like, use your imagination, please, because, like... The fact that you would say that I don't have a relationship with the father of my two children, like that's just really like minimizing it. And I think what you mean is that you think that like somehow I'm exempt from sexism and patriarchy and all the ways that this relationship is difficult, you know, like I, I, I carry those same things, you know, and I have other friends who are a little bit more savvy and they're like, oh, so it's just like a straight relationship. We don't have sex either since we had kids. <laughs> well, so but, so tell me when you say like you're not exempt from sexism and patriarchy, how does that show up? What does that mean? Oh, that I, you know, like I carry the load. Hmm. You know, like I'm not about to let my kid go to school with some lunchbox that is like going to leach plastic into his food for like every day of his life. And, you know, it's got to be like a specific kind of water bottle. And I make sure that I'm not using any kind of scented detergents on their clothing. And I got to remember today's picture day because that would have been forgotten. And like, does the baby have a backup change of clothes? And like that goes in my work backpack that I take on transit every day. And, you know, do the diapers need to be topped up? And like, is he in enriching activities? And is, you know, do I need to go talk to his teacher about whether or not, you know, he's being overstimulated in class because all of these things fall on my shoulders because they're not even on his radar. Right. So even though it's a not a conventional arrangement and between two queer people, some of these traditional gender roles still have found their way into your lives. Yeah. And it's not like he's trying to like harm me nor like people trying to be harmful, but this is the way that things still do manifest. And I'm still doing a full-time job. I'm a trauma therapist. I work in the youth shelter system. I grind it out. And then I just started a private practice at home. So I do that as well. Fast forward, you had your son and then you all decided to go ahead and have a second child. What went into that decision and how has your family continued to evolve and, oh. and your relationships? 
Well, you know, he was all like, yeah, two. And I said two and he meant one and I meant three. I wish I had known like he was so confident about two before I like let that be my last everything but I'm good with it now. You know, I started the business, which has like been exhilarating. I love having my own practice. It takes a lot of confidence to set yourself up and being in practice for myself is like wonderful. It's really, really nice. You described a little bit about how certain people make assumptions about your relationship, but what has been for you something that's really unexpected um, in this, in your relationship with Vino? That's how good it is. There were people I told that I was going to do this and they were like, you better have a good lawyer. I was like, seriously, that's your advice? Like, you're not like, congratulations, you're pregnant. Yeah, like you're setting yourself up for a disaster. Like, it would be an impossible dream that two people could move forward with love and intention and do this. This is messy. Relationships are messy. You have to navigate difficulties. You have to have some kind of language of navigating conflict and agreement about what that's going to be. You know, and we get like a little bit like tense with each other once in a while, but like we fight over text. And when I say fight, it's like when we're distressed, we go over text because it, it decreases the tone. Plus our children never let us speak. So like we don't actually get to have a conversation in front of them. I co-sleep with them every night. So like there's no me getting out of bed because they wake up. So we communicate over text and like I'll be like, I feel really like distressed about this. And he'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Or like, well, I still think you're wrong, but okay we work it out. So there's still maintenance there that needs to happen. But the thing is, is like, I just could never have anticipated how abundant and beautiful it was going to be. There's this saying that I've heard many times, which is you can't choose your family. But what does that mean for you for someone who's made a lot of really intentional choices around choosing your family? Well, you know, it's just been a blessing. Like I couldn't have known that not having a family would make space for so many people. One of our chosen aunties has absolutely no relation to us at all and is like one of our main people. We have so many chosen relationships. We just make up whoever we want. Sarah is not in touch with most of the people in her family of origin. And while some people in Sarah and Bino's chosen family have come and gone, one person from Sarah's past, Cindy who was an important and loving figure during her teen years while she was in foster care, has filled a new role in a powerful way. I got pregnant with my first kid and I called her up and I said, Cindy, I was just wondering if you weren't too busy, would you like to be the grandmother to my kid? And she's like, oh, I never had my own children. Oh my goodness. I didn't even know I could wow. be a grandmother and not have children. Well, okay. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, I'll be the grandmother. I'll be Granny Cindy. Granny Cindy? Nanny Cindy? I don't know. Let me think about it. She's like very excited, invested right away. Yeah, so she comes up to Toronto a couple times a year. The kids call her like Granny Munino, which is like Granny Marshmallow, or like they call her Granny Money because she gives them coins. It's really, I don't know, they just she's sweet. She always bakes them these like little scotch cookies and she sings them like really terrible Scottish songs and she makes this like special pasta. It's awesome. She's awesome. There's things that are missing, but in that relationship, because we don't have history, we're figuring out as we go, but it's actually like quite special. Sarah and Bino and their two kids have built what works for their family from scratch. But bucking convention in some ways doesn't mean you get to shed all of society's expectations. It's way more complicated than that. After the break, 
We'll be back with another Canadian family who's making their own roles, thinking about equality in their own relationship, and their story is even challenging how people think about Ontario, Canada's new progressive family laws. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hello, Rachel McCarthy. So I have been running the double shift for about a year now as a small business. You're doing a great job, Catherine. Thanks, Rachel. And there has been only one time that I have felt like crying. One time you felt like crying. I feel like it has to be when you were having so many problems working on the brothel story from season one. You would think that. But actually, the one time I wanted to cry was when I could not figure out how to set up our financial software to get payments out to freelancers. I found it so confusing and frustrating. Oh, how I wish I had been using HoneyBook back then to manage all of my business admin stuff. Spoiler alert, I did not get into creating the double shift to spend my time weeping over business administration tasks. So I'm very glad HoneyBook is sponsoring the show this season. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. HoneyBook makes it simple to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keeps everything on track and makes you look good. So we can all get back to doing what we love and why we became freelancers and small business owners in the first place. We didn't get into this to spend our time tracking down invoices. So true. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit HoneyBook.com slash DoubleShift. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to HoneyBook.com slash DoubleShift for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash double shift, one word, for 50% off. When it comes to beauty products, we have so many choices, so why not ask for more from your favorite brands? I'm motivated now more than ever to stick to high-quality, amazing products that are both vegan and cruelty-free. That's why I'm so glad I discovered Thrive Cosmetics. I feel like I never have time to go to the mall to try out a million products, so I love that Thrive delivers right to your door. I tried a few products out, and I'm really into them. Their overnight sensation brightening sleep mask is really good, and I definitely could tell a difference in my skin right away. I used some of their makeup right before I did a video interview, and I thought it looked great. I've always wanted to buy one of those eye brightening sticks, and I love their brilliant eye brightener in Stella and their cult favorite mascara. There is a reason that Thrive Cosmetics' Liquid Lash Extension Mascara is sold every 7 seconds and has over 7,000 five-star reviews online. It's legit. Plus, for every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics helps women in need, including domestic violence survivors. So it's a purchase you can feel good about. Start thriving and help women in need today by going to Thrive Cosmetics, that's thrivecosmetics.com slash doubleshift, and use the code doubleshift for 15% off your first purchase. That's Thrive, C-A-U-S-E, medics.com slash doubleshift, code doubleshift for 15% off. As I mentioned at the end of our first episode, 
We are making this season while I'm pregnant with twins. But before we even started production, just a week or two after I found out I was pregnant with not one, but two babies, I was feeling totally overwhelmed by the news. I had a lot of vivid dreams, and one night I had this dream that friends of ours, a married couple who live in another city and also have one older son, decided to move into our basement. All four adults, them and my husband and I, were just going to raise the twins communally. In the dream, I felt this gigantic sense of relief. We can totally do this with four parents, I thought. And then I woke up. In some places, that idea is not a dream. One reason we've headed to Ontario, Canada for this episode is not because everything is better for our neighbors in the North. Well, maybe it is. They do have paid family leave and universal health care. No, actually, the reason we're particularly interested in Canada is because of the province of Ontario's unique and progressive new family law that strives to recognize that there are many different ways to live our lives outside of the nuclear family box, including allowing up to four adults to be listed on a birth certificate as the legal parents of a child. It's trying to recognize that families are created in multiple ways, that they look different from the traditional uh, male breadwinning father and the homemaking mother with the requisite two children. You know, it's really trying to recognize that um, families look different and that we ought to, as a society, be recognizing this. That's University of Ottawa law professor Natasha Bacht talking about Ontario's All Families Are Equal Act perhaps the most progressive family legislation in the world, which was passed in 2016. Its goal was to address the reality that more and more families are coming together in new arrangements, like Sarah and Bino's, and the government should better support and recognize them. In addition to that amazing four parents thing, the law uses gender-neutral language, has provisions around egg and sperm donation, and assisted reproductive technology and greatly simplifies the process of gay couples adopting a partner's biological child. I talked to Natasha together with Linda Collins, who is also a law professor. Linda is Natasha's co-parent and the other legal mother to nine-year-old Ilan. They've been friends since before Ilan was born, and they've never been romantically involved. Their arrangement isn't included in the new law because even this thoughtful and progressive law doesn't even imagine all of the equally valid ways to create family. And we'll talk more about that later. But let's begin with Natasha, who gave birth to their son, Ilan, nine years ago. At the time, she was planning on being a single mother by choice. I didn't think that I was going to raise this child in a silo or anything like that. I knew that it would be a village that would be raising him. Um, and Linda, at one point, one day I just told her that I was pregnant, um, and she was thrilled for me and said almost immediately, I'd like to apply for the position of birth coach. And I'd actually had a birth coach in mind, my best friend who lives in Toronto. And Linda, of course, knew this. And she said, yes, but you need a birth coach in the city that you're living in. You need someone here in Ottawa. And she said, I have a lot of experience. I used to live with a midwife. And so I took her up on that. And we did prenatal classes together. And she really just fell in love with Elan. She was the first person to see him other than 
the physician who was, um, I had an emergency C-section, of course, the physician who was sort of cutting into me. And she, I think Linda thought she was going to have a really interesting experience, birth experience, and, you know, probably still be involved in some minor way in Elan's life, but then that she would sort of move on and, you know, we'd continue to be friends. But I don't think either of us thought that she would play the role that she now plays in his life. Um, and certainly the fact that she is his mother, I think that really happened organically. It happened over time. So after Ilan was born, circumstances changed and Ilan's needs were a lot more than a typical baby's needs and a, a typical child's needs. Linda, how do you remember that time? Well, it was really mixed because we were absolutely overjoyed by his birth. I mean, I had thought that seeing a human be born would be an incredible experience, and it was everything I could have imagined and more. We just adored him from the second that he was born, and he was not looking his best. I mean, he was gray, he was hypoxic, and yet we just adored him. And he was this wonderful little personality right from the very beginning, even though he was uncomfortable and having cerebral irritability and crying a lot, vomiting a lot. And then he started to have these strange involuntary movements with his eyes. And that coupled with the fact that he wasn't holding up his own head and he was already by then, I guess, four or five months, mm -hmm. is what led to kind of specialist interventions. Obviously, it was a concerning time. Now, I was lucky in that I had been active in disability rights movements, you know, since my early 20s. My mom is a rehabilitation doctor, and so I had a pretty positive view of life with a disability. And personally, I wasn't scared at all of him having a disability, but I was very scared of him having some kind of a terminal illness. And there was a period of about, I don't know, maybe a month where they didn't know what was causing these things, and I was praying a lot and meditating a lot and just doing the best I could to support Natasha through it. All that to say, when the results of the MRI came back and it said he's severely brain damaged, I was so happy. Hmm. I was just so relieved because, you know, what I said to Natasha, this means the injury is over and he's going to be fine. And, you know, and she had moments of wondering what kind of life he was going to lead. And I was able to just be like, he's going to have a wonderful life. That's our commitment. We're going to be here and we're just going to make sure of that. So in those early years before you all had made anything about your relationship official, what did your daily routines look like and how did Linda sort of become more involved over time? You know, she was good to her word and was sort of there for the appointments. But more than that, she was just there all the time. You know, she um, would spend hours with us. Um, she adored Elan. She wasn't doing it to... Um, you know, she was probably partly doing it to be a good friend to me, but she just couldn't stay away from Ilan. And he was getting more and more fun to be with him. He was. Once his epilepsy was diagnosed and he went on the medication to control his very serious seizures, which are called infantile spasms, then his real personality really emerged. It did. And I remember vividly thinking, it's like the clouds moving off the sun. That's know? true. And like Natasha, he's this funny, vibrant, interesting, loving person, you know, he, he often gives you a look that if I could translate into words would be like, I'm having the best time ever. Are you having the best time ever? So, I mean, it all kind of happened very gradually. Honestly, I don't think that we even realized that we were 
parenting together or that we didn't really call each other a family early on, even though we were doing all the things that families do. We were coordinating our schedules together. We were checking in on whether, you know, one of us could do this and the other person could look after Elan. I mean, we were sort of doing all the things that parents do. But we just, you know, probably because of the experiences that we've had and the way society sort of sets itself up, we just didn't call each other a family until a friend of ours came over for dinner and she had just assumed that we were a, a couple, a gay couple. And uh, we said, oh, actually, no, we're not. She just didn't even flinch. She just said, oh, but you're a family. And we said, yeah, yeah, that's right. We are. <laughs> and it was from that point on that I think, uh, you know, while the practical day-to-day the love, the kindness, none of that had really changed, but we just saw, it shifted how we saw each other. I think we really began to see Linda as Ilan's parent, and we started to see each other as co-parents. It was so gradual. Like, I remember he was at least three before we had a conversation where we agreed that if something changed, if one of us got married or something and moved, that the other would try to move. You know, that we sort of gradually formed a commitment that there would be some permanence in this. Linda ended up moving closer to Natasha and Ilan, and then ultimately bought an apartment in their same building. As Linda approached her 40th birthday, she started thinking about her own parenting journey and was exploring fertility options and adoption. At one point, she went out for a hike in the woods to think things through. She says all of a sudden, she had this moment of clarity. Why would she adopt a stranger when she could adopt Ilan? So Linda decided to talk to Natasha about it. We were sitting around beside Elan as he was eating in his special chair. And I just said, no pressure at all, but would you be comfortable with me adopting Elan? And I was kind of expecting her to take, I don't know, days or weeks, but she just was quiet for maybe two minutes. And then she said, yes, let's do that. Really, I was just thinking through, I guess, the last two years of his life and thinking I could not have done this without Linda, wouldn't want to do this without Linda. You know, the best part of parenting with her is being able to think about, remember when he did this and, you know, having this memory and sharing that. And like, it's so, that's the most beautiful stuff. It's not really, of course, she provides me with support and, um, We strategize about the various things that, you know, maybe challenges for him and how to fix those. But really, it's the happy moments. And I was just thinking about that. And I didn't need much time because I just wanted to just formalize what we already had. In 2016, Linda received an official declaration of parentage. It allows Linda to be considered a legal parent of Ilan and was approved just a few weeks before the All Families Are Equal Act was passed, which was lucky because they just don't know if Linda's declaration of parentage would have been possible under the new law. There is this problem with the legislation, which basically it does allow for non-conjugal couples to parent. So two people that are not in a conjugal relationship can become parents through the All Families Are Equal Act. But you have to form that intention to parent before the child is born. Which, of course, was not our situation. So in that sense, it still creates an inequality as compared with traditional families, because, of course, somebody can become a step-parent long after the child is born and can go through a very streamlined step-parent adoption process. But under the All Families Are Equal Act, we would have had a problem. 
it's so interesting that this legislation is really inclusive in a lot of ways, but the idea that to really be a partnership, you need to be in a romantic relationship is, is still like a part of the thinking about family. How do you all think about that? We think that families can be created in all sorts of different ways and that, of course, um, you don't need to be having sex with the person that you're parenting with in order to be good parents. And speaking of sex, both Natasha and Linda, as well as Sarah and Bino from earlier in the episode, have talked through what it would look like if any of them got into a serious romantic relationship with a new partner. Sarah and Bino have agreed that they'd meet the person first to be sure they were comfortable with the potential partner being around the kids and are committed to the two of them remaining as primary parents. Linda and Natasha have also discussed it and are committed to staying as Elan's central parent figures, regardless of any changes in their romantic lives. Linda has recently begun dating someone who she spends time with separately, but who also spends time together with Elan and Natasha. So, Natasha, has it been hard at any point to um, change your sort of thinking as a, the primary caregiver or and sort of your identity as a single mother by choice into something different? How, how has that role changed and that identity changed for you? I never felt like he's my child and I need to be the mom. Um, so while I was perfectly happy with the title of single mom by choice, you know, when that was very clear to me, it was sort of beginning to change and that I sort of welcomed that change with Linda. It didn't feel difficult at all. I see the bond that they have and it's so good for both of them, indeed for all three of us. So it never felt to me, um, like she was taking something away from me, like I was less of a mother in any way. It just made me feel stronger. Natasha has a real gift for opening her heart and her family, you know, and I think she always planned to raise Elan in the context of her family of origin. They're very close and they're very involved. And I've just seen that we have been able to get so much help and so much joy from a whole community of people because we're not possessive. And, you know, as it turns out, that's been crucially important because the amount of work that Elan requires is more than any one or two people could do. So, you know, expanding our circle of love and our circle of care has brought us more laughter, more fun, more joy, and it makes us sane. It preserves our physical bodies. It, mm -hmm. you know, makes all of this possible. Linda, I've talked to a many uh, non-traditional couples and different co-parents. Um, this whole season is really, that's what the whole season of the show this season is about. But I found that there's still a lot, um, even in queer families and non-traditional families, there's still a lot of defaulting to a primary caregiver, regardless of gender, and a secondary caregiver model, um, even th for those who really want to build thoughtful and equal partnerships. How have you all thought about working to achieve equal parenting, or what is that dynamic like in your relationship? And maybe this is partly because I'm a lawyer, I'm thinking about this, but the kind of equality that we value in Canadian constitutional law is what we call substantive equality, not formal equality. Substantive equality means we don't treat everyone alike. Some people need different things, like Elan, you know? Natasha is much healthier than I am, much more organized than I am, and so, you know, it's made a lot of sense in my mind that we do different things. She does all the administration. She's a genius at handling, you know, 
eight different doctors, four different therapists. Occasionally, I'll step in to help with administration. I don't think if you divided up hours or if you thought about you know, the number of kilojoules that we burn in the physical work of caring for him, that it would be equal. It's not. She does more, and I respect that. Um, but I've always felt like it's the kind of equality that matters is there, the equality of respect and each person's contribution being valued. And, you know, I also have that awareness that even if I do less than Natasha, the work that I do is crucial to her quality of life and to his quality of life. And, you know, I would say that there are things that I simply would not be able to do if Linda wasn't around. You know, in addition to being a law professor, I'm an independent dancer and a choreographer, um, and I usually perform every two years or so. And it does mean that, you know, there's more of a burden on her, or we bring in more help, but even then there's more of a burden because it means I'm not around, and I'm not going to be able to do my best as a choreographer and dancer if I don't feel my son is happy. You know, we do do the usual kind of coordination that parents do. And sometimes that means one person is doing more, and sometimes it means the other person is doing more. And the thing is that we do have disagreements and arguments. We're not perfect when it comes to stuff like this, but we do have this nice ability to talk about things. And we don't like being mad at each other. It sort of drives both of us insane. It can only last for an hour max because it just makes us feel sick. In talking about your story, it revolves around two parents, but, you know, with the All Families Are Equal Act, as we mentioned, there can be up to four legal parents. And you've both researched and written about sort of the rich history of communities in which there are sort of no limits on the number of and type of parents or parental figures. Can you all talk about some examples you found throughout the world that showcase this? Well, that's right. I mean, in, in South Asian communities, I myself come from a South Asian community, it's not unusual at all. I mean, of course, there are nuclear families uh, within the South Asian diaspora, and even in the Indian subcontinent, but it's very normal for aunties and uncles and cousins and, um, you know, cousin brothers or cousin sisters, as we refer to them, to be very much a part of the parenting relationship when it comes to children. In indigenous communities, black communities, those women have always had to work. They've never had the luxury to stay home and be the parent who stays home and raises the children. They've had to do everything. And so the only way that they could have done that is by asking friends and family to contribute to the caregiving. I mean, I've known single mothers who did a phenomenal job completely on their own without having anything coming close to a co-parent. But most people are happier and healthier if they have support. Now, that can be social support, you know, through government-funded social services, through friends, through family. But, I mean, I remember before there was even an idea of me becoming a co-parent, my mom saying to me after Elan was born, you know, I hope Natasha makes sure to get enough support. She said, without the support, she can do it, like she'll survive. But it's the difference between being happy in it or not. And that support doesn't have to be a co-parent. Exactly. It can be that you have an excellent public school system that has great after-school programs, or that you have mom and baby groups in the community, or that you're part of a faith community, or that you're part of an activism community, or, you know, these intentional urban communities, or a CSA that brings people together. But just the idea is maximizing freedom. You know, what matters is that everybody's doing their best, that everybody has a chance to thrive, and the details of that are kind of unimportant. 
Natasha and Linda equally share the financial costs of caring for Elon, including saving for his future care. Elon has very significant physical and verbal challenges. He's able to walk with the assistance of a walker, but isn't able to sit well on his own. Natasha and Linda point out that it isn't just them, but a whole community that helps take care of him. Elon FaceTimes with his grandparents daily. He goes to a diverse and inclusive public school that they're very happy with. They have paid caregivers that take care of Elon after school and some on Sundays. And he has part-time support workers that are paid for by the government to help with his daily routines. I loved talking to our amazing subjects on today's show. And Sarah McDonald, the first mom in this episode, had so many great stories to tell, we couldn't fit them all in. So, if you'd like to hear more tales from the wonderful Sarah McDonald, she had me totally cracking up over the story of her first child's conception. You don't want to miss this. Become a member of The Double Shift. It really helps support the work we do. To become a member of The Double Shift and get this members-only content, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. Next week, we're back in the USA, but not for your traditional American family setup. We'll meet a transgender parent of five named Ted Rao, living in a co-housing community. We are not on our own, and we don't want to be on our own, and there's no point in proving that you can do it on your own if it's much more fun and easier to do it with others. His story presents a fascinating and nuanced take on gender and motherhood that is going to challenge your assumptions. You don't want to miss this episode. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Catherine Goldstein. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our editorial advisor is Amy Westervelt. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Audio mix by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson and Lauren Smith Brody. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation. And you are members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks for joining The Double Shift.